pros and the no start with Lowe's because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets. And you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sforpros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location. U.S. only. Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Good morning. Today is February 27th, 2014. I'd like to welcome you to the show. Uh, we have a number of interesting topics that we're going to go through today. Um, we've received a lot of inquiries this past week on our Facebook page about negligence and questions concerning negligence and do I have a case? What's negligence? Uh, it's a word that's commonly thrown around, but but what does it mean and what are the legal implications of it? So. We're going to take some time today to discuss negligence and give an overview of how a negligence claim works, what you need to know if you're an individual, a business, a plaintiff, or a defendant. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to talk about some of the recent uh, legal issues that have arisen this week, and I invite any of you who have questions or want to participate in today's broadcast to call into the switchboard at 347 855-8831. We'll take your questions on the air. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is Arizona's anti-gay bill. Now, uh, for those of you who have been following along with it, it was a bill proposed primarily by uh, right-wing religious groups who were essentially requesting that the state of Arizona allow businesses to uh, essentially ban those who are, are gay from certain establishments. So, in other words, if you were a bar and you were owned by a right-wing Christian fundamentalist who believes that uh, it, it's sinful to serve someone who is, uh, is gay, they were asking the, the state to enable them to do that. And they relied on various constitutional issues concerning religious freedom and the separation of, of church and state. And uh, it's a very interesting bill that was proposed. Now, yesterday, uh, the Arizona Governor Jan Brewer vetoed the bill, and that was a very popular decision 
And I want to talk a little bit about that today and its impact on society. Uh, I know we've received a tremendous amount of commentary from our listeners concerning this issue because in the past we have talked about various issues concerning equality and, and gay right uh, issues. So you've got to look at this bill on its face. It, it seems to me that whether you are middle of the road, you know, completely anti-gay or pro-gay, this bill is really um, nothing more than an attempt to bring us back to the days of the civil rights movement where African Americans were told they had to sit on the back of the bus. I, I don't really understand this bill and how it was even presented. Uh, I happen to be a Christian. Uh, my religious beliefs are, are relatively strong. And I am appalled by the introduction of a bill like this because it gives a very, very bad name, I think, to people who are religious, whether you are Jewish or Christian or Muslim. It makes no difference. The fact is, is that people have religions. Maybe they have no religion, but there's always that far right wing movement where you see these these. Christians, for example, we're going to focus on, on that because that seems to be what you see a lot of on especially reality TV, where you'll have a right-wing Christian fundamentalist group being portrayed as crazy and over the top. And you'll see um, you know, polygamists where you've got a man with four wives. And when the average person, even the average religious or Christian person, sees this show on TV, I think that you know you you might watch it, but it's like watching a train wreck. It really gives those people who have religious beliefs a very very bad name. It allows uh, some of the left wing liberals to then criticize Christianity or Judaism or Mus Muslims uh, as a whole, and and they say that anyone who is religious is crazy. Because you look at this bill proposed in Arizona. Now, I don't see how it makes any sense to say that I want to reserve the right not to serve you because you are gay. So what does that mean, first of all? Does that mean that you have to present a I'm straight card before you go into the business establishment? You know, let's check your ID and are you gay or are you straight? That makes no sense. Separately, we're in a society where we have to accept change. This country has evolved, both politically, economically, technologically, so rapidly over the last 50 years. And I think that in today's modern day and age, it's something that has to be recognized. So for a fundamentalist group to propose a bill like this in Arizona, I think it, it is a waste of everyone's time, quite frankly, and I understand the rights that these fundamentalists were trying to enforce. But I think you have to take a step back and say, well, where are we? Are we in the you know, 1900s? Are, are we in the Civil War era? No, we're not. We're in a, in a society where people have rights. Now, we're not talking today about rights uh, beyond 
what every human is afforded under the Constitution. So I'm not going to get into any esoteric discussions concerning whether it's wrong or right. The fact is, is that people in this country come to this country or came to this country back at the time when there was mass you know, immigration to the, to the country for freedoms. You go back to the, the pilgrims. Why did they leave England? They came here for religious freedom. They didn't want to be told what they could and could not do. This was a land of opportunity. Unfortunately, the land of opportunity has been squandered. It's been uh, mutilated. And we have a lot of public interest groups. We have a lot of, of corrupt politicians. We have a lot of corrupt businessmen and women who use the freedoms that we're entitled to, to hurt others, to just be so selfish that they succeed while others fail. That's the society we live in today. That's where we have evolved or what we've evolved into. But if you go back to the fundamental building blocks of this nation, it was a nation built upon freedom. And so when you look at a bill like this Arizona bill, how, whether you think that the being um, homosexual or heterosexual is wrong or right is, is not the issue. How can you support a bill that takes away the rights of human beings simply because of a way of life, a choice, a decision that, that they've made, uh, nature? How, how can you do that? And by vetoing the bill, I think a clear message was sent that that sort of persecution, that sort of discrimination cannot exist. You know, and, and at the same time that Arizona was striking down or vetoing this bill, we have Texas striking down a, ba a ban on gay marriage. Now, we're, we're going to talk politically for a second. Texas is a conservative state. It's always been. And so when you have a conservative state like Texas acknowledging that a ban on gay marriage is a violation of the inalienable rights that we are all afforded under the Constitution, I think that sends a very, very clear message throughout the country that, you know, conservative states, liberal states, it makes no difference. This is a matter of, of human rights. And I, I think that Again, whether you are pro or anti-homosexual, it makes no difference when you're talking about the human condition. I wouldn't want somebody telling me that because I believe that blue is the best color, that they won't serve me because I like blue. I mean, that's how ridiculous it, it, it is. And that obviously is a ridiculous example, but... I think that it's one that needs to be made. So I applaud the governor's decision to um, veto this bill because, really, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom how this would work if this bill had been passed. So um, I, I think it's, it's a victory not just for gay versus straight. I think it's a victory for citizens of the United States for, you know, for humans, people in general. I think that we have to look at 
where we are right now. You know, we are in a a very um, controlled society. We have traffic cameras at every red light. We have, um, you know, government agencies tracking cell phones, tracking text messages and emails. We have people that patrol what we do on the Internet. We have, you know, a variety of things. And I think to um, take a step back and, and, and say government should not dictate what we do in, in our choice or in our nature, I think is a very positive step forward. Now, this ties into another topic, which is very relevant this week, which is a Supreme Court decision about the ability of an individual to protest on a military base. So the issue with, with this military-based protest is that it's public land, it's owned by the state, but the portion of land upon which there's a military base is controlled by the federal government, controlled by the military of the United States. And so there's an individual who has for years entered onto military bases, uh, not illegally, it's not like he'd be broke in, but, you know, on the outskirts, on the side of the fence, and uh, areas where you could get into lawfully, and he would stage a protest or put up a sign or whatnot. And um, he's been to court at least three times that I can recall. And the issue is, should you stop me from exercising my First Amendment freedom of speech simply because... I am on land controlled by a, a, a military organization. And the decision that, that came down just this week from the Supreme Court is that um, the military has the right, since they do control the land, since the federal government is in control of the land, to allow or not allow certain activities on the military base. And it was uh, a unanimous decision and I think that if you look at an analysis of First Amendment freedom of speech, I think that you can carve out an argument either way. But I think that you have to understand we're talking again about the ability of the government to dictate or control certain aspects of society. And there are obvious security reasons why you would not want to allow protesters into or around a military uh, installation. So I understand that from a national security standpoint. And, and quite frankly, I think that this individual's desire to protest on or near a military base is just an attention-seeking uh, activity because you are free to go and organize under the Constitution, under the First Amendment, organize and protest and demonstrate Every single you know year, every month, sometimes every other week, you'll see protesters and demonstrators gathering outside on the lawn of the White House, and that is permissible. You'll see people in Washington D.C. consistently staging protests. You know, there's people outside of Burlington Coat Factory saying "Save the animals." So, I mean, you have the ability to go and to get your message across. 
I don't think personally, while I'm not a big believer in excessive government control, I don't think that this Supreme Court decision was a bad decision. I think it was probably a good decision because we do have to, whether you are a conspiracy theorist, whether you are uh, a, a left-wing liberal, makes no difference. The simple fact is, is that we as citizens of the United States have to have some level of faith in our military and to an extent our government um, obviously you're going to have those arguing that the government is corrupt and you know that's that's not the subject matter we're discussing today uh, that's that's more for the Alex Jones show uh, but the question here is does the prevention does the Supreme Court's ruling really impact this individual's First Amendment rights and I say no he is free to go wherever he wants and demonstrate and to protest. Look, we've had the Ku Klux Klan marching on Washington, and that's been acceptable. We have had um, Satanist organizations coming and, and protesting. And so, you know, I, I think that to say that uh, your, your First Amendment freedom of speech has, has been impeded upon. I think it's ridiculous. And I think that this desire to go and protest on a military base is nothing more than a, an attempt by this, this individual to gain some notoriety. I mean, obviously, at some level, he is getting his message across because he is uh, in the news. He's on every newspaper. He's on the internet. So I guess if you are him, you may view this as a success because you have gained notoriety and you have brought attention to your, you know, your your issue. But as far as it being a First Amendment freedom of speech violation, prohibition, or bar, it's not. And I think the the Supreme Court, um, you know, got that got that right. So uh, you know, something else that. Uh, is interesting that I want to bring into uh, the mix today is that there is, and I'll have to um, pull up the exact state, but there is a discussion about a satanic group in Oklahoma City. This is very fascinating, uh, which ties into our discussion about governmental control and uh, chilling effects, First Amendment, freedom of speech and expression. Uh, there is a law that has been um, passed, I guess you could say, or has just been available or around in Oklahoma. Um, and it, it essentially, and I'm simplifying this, but it essentially says that if you are a private organization or group um, and you want to display a religious symbol on state property. You're permitted to do so, but you must pay for it yourself and you must maintain it yourself. And so you'll have um, the Ten Commandments. There's, a, there's a, a statue of the Ten Commandments outside the state capitol. There are um, a number of, of uh, Jewish symbols and statues and so that's all acceptable because, you know, the, the state is essentially saying, yes, the state will not sanction this, the state's not going to pay for it, nor will it maintain, but under your, your freedom of 
expression, so long as you pay and maintain, you know, we're accepting of it. But this is very fascinating because the uh, Church of Satan, or the Satanic Temple, which is based out of New York, has this plan to place a uh, statue of Lucifer in the same spot outside this building in the state capitol where there is a replica of the Ten Commandments. And uh, it's a fascinating discussion, and we are hoping to get someone from the Satanic Temple uh, to come on the show and, and talk a little bit about this, because I am uh, deeply fascinated to hear their legal argument as to uh, why this should be allowed. Now, what's going on is, is that the uh, Oklahoma City has uh, put a temporary halt on the ability to erect these monuments because uh, I think that from a um, general view of things, I, I think that they understand the impact that a statue of Lucifer could have. Uh, there's all sorts of arguments going back and forth that it's not an organized religion, which um, I'm obviously not pro-Satan, but you could argue that it is uh, an organized religion because it does qualify. It is a um, non-profit religious organization under the law, under the, the state of New York's law. So I think that that argument is valid. But now what effect does it have if you place a statue of Lucifer you know, in Oklahoma City? What is that going to do? But now if you're going to ban that, then what happens to the other religious symbols uh, do they have to tear down the Ten Commandments? So this is a very, very interesting uh, and unique discussion. Uh, I'd like to get somebody who has some familiarity with this and uh, perhaps a representative from the Satanic Temple to, uh, to come on the show and, and to talk to us about it. I, I really think it's an interesting topic. All right, so let's now transition into the answer to the questions we've received this week about negligence what is negligence, explain how it um, impacts a case in our rights. So let's, uh, let's go through the elements of negligence. And before we get into that, let me just explain that every cause of action under the law, regardless of your state, breach of contract negligence, um, you know, malpractice, which essentially is negligence or professional malpractice, any of these claims, they're built on elements, and each claim must successfully establish the number of elements provided by either statute or case law. So when I say let's go through the elements of negligence, what I'm referring to is the characteristics or qualities of a negligence claim that must be met in order to establish negligence. All right, so element one is that you must have an established duty of care to a particular individual, group, etc. So you need, a, you need to have a duty of care. B, you need to breach that duty of care. C, you must suffer damages. And D, your damages must be 
a direct proximate result of your breach of the duty of care. So you have to have a duty of care. You have to breach that duty of care. An individual has to suffer or sustain damages as a result of your breach, and that breach and damages must be so causally connected, so tightly um, interwoven, right? Uh, a direct connection, if you will, to the breach and the damages to have a successful negligence claim. All right. Now, how is it that you establish a breach of based upon a reasonable person standard? All right. So let's let's put this into a, an example so we can illustrate it better. So. As the operator of a motor vehicle, you're the driver of a car, do you have a duty of care to pedestrians and drivers around you? And quite clearly, you do. You know you do because there are laws against various vehicular activities, Right? You know you can't run somebody down. You know that you have to have a driver's license. You know that you have to maintain a speed limit. So it's quite clear that you, own a, you owe a duty of care to pedestrians and other motorists. All right, so we've established your duty of care. Now we want to talk about a breach. Let's assume for a minute that as you're driving your car, you are not fully paying attention. You, know, you get a call on your cell phone. We all know about cell phones while you drive, right? You get a text. You get a call. You look down for a minute. You don't realize that the car in front of you has slowed down considerably, and you drive your car into the back of the other vehicle. So you rear-end that, that vehicle. And the driver, who has his seatbelt on, airbag comes out, smashes his face up, breaks his nose, um, you know, maybe the collision was so hard that there was um, some glass that, that, you know, caused some lacerations. Maybe the seatbelt was, uh, was, was on and it, it fractured some ribs or whatnot. So you've got an injured, injured individual in the car in front of you. And you know that you have a duty of care. Now let's see if you breach that duty of care. Okay. You may say to yourself, I didn't breach the duty of care. I was being careful. You know, he slowed down. It was a split second. Well, how does a court, how does a judge, how does a jury analyze whether or not you have breached your duty of care? And here is how. They will take your actions or inactions, and they will compare them to those actions or inactions of a reasonable I think we may have had, I think we may have had a technical problem. Um, so I apologize for that, but it, we appear to be back on. Uh, we were going back to our discussion about uh, negligence and uh, establishing that you have breached your duty of care. So, just to reiterate, in case this is the technical glitch uh, um, interrupted what we're saying, we're talking about driving a motor vehicle. We're talking about getting a cell phone call or text, looking down, taking your eyes off the road, rear-ending the car in front of you, 
The driver of the car sustains a fractured nose, ribs, and some lacerations. And we've established that you owe a duty of care as the driver of a motor vehicle on a roadway. Now we're looking at, did you breach the duty of care? And we're talking about how a judge, jury, or attorneys for that matter, analyze whether or not you have breached your duty of care. And I said that it is established through looking at a reasonable person under the same set of circumstances. So it's called the reasonable person standard. We're going to look at your actions, looking down at the phone while you're operating a motor vehicle, and we're going to compare them to the actions of a reasonable person under the same circumstances. Would it be appropriate, would it be reasonable for an operator of a motor vehicle to take their eyes off the road, to pick up their cell phone, and to rear-end another car? Now, the answer is no. That's not reasonable. That's, that's a reasonable person would not do that. So your actions are unreasonable, and therefore, you breached your duty of care. All right. That establishes liability. Duty and breach. But now we have to connect the other part of a lawsuit to the liability. Remember we've talked in the past about a lawsuit must, must have both liability and damages. So you must be able to prove that somebody is at fault and that that fault caused you damages. Now we've established you have a duty, you breached the duty. Now let's talk about the damages and causal connection, the proximate cause of the damages. The driver of the vehicle who you rear-ended has a fractured nose, a broken nose, broken ribs, and lacerations. It's clear that there are physical manifestations of damages, right? This person's got physical injuries. You can't... You can't have a better example of damage than a physical injury. We're not talking about an emotional injury. We're not talking about a monetary. We're talking about a physical injury. This person has breaks and blood and cuts. They're going to need to go to the hospital. So damages have been established. Now, there's one final piece to this negligence puzzle, and that is we've got liability. We've got damages. You have to now connect the two, right? This is like a connect-the-dots puzzle. Legally, the term of art is, caused, is called proximate cause. Your actions or inactions, your breach of your duty of care, and the damages are directly, proximately connected to one another. So, in this case, where you rear-ended the car in front of you, is... Your negligence, your breach of duty, directly and proximately related to the injury sustained by the driver of the other vehicle? And the answer to that is yes. But for your negligence, that individual would not have sustained injuries. There is a direct causal connection between your negligence, your breach of duty of care, and the outcome of your breach, which is damages. 
Now, we can get into complex discussions and, and law school analysis later, um, but there are uh, cases out there where proximate cause might not be established, right? Like there's some of these, these really strange um, case law studies where the question might be, you know, if um, somebody has a truck with uh, uh, tools, let's say, there's a wrench, you're a contractor, and it's on the flatbed and it's not secured, and it falls off your truck, and then a half an hour later, a car driving down the roadway runs over the wrench. It punctures their tire. They swerve off the side of the road into another vehicle, which then hits the guardrail, comes back into the vehicle, and strikes a bicyclist. So who's negligent here? Is there a proximate and direct cause between the wrench and all these other injuries? And that's something that is looked at on a case-by-case basis by the courts to analyze whether or not there is proximate cause. Now, proximate cause, by the way, is a legal issue. That's an issue that the judge can decide. That's not an issue of fact, right? Um, A judge will look at that and say there is or is not proximate cause. Uh, It's not like a factual discussion where you have to determine whether or not your actions were reasonable or unreasonable because that's a question of fact. That's not a question of law. The reasonableness standard is something that is looked at by a jury. Are your actions reasonable under the circumstances? That's a question of, of fact, not a question of law. Proximate cause, on the other hand, is a question of law and can be decided. So I want to go through some of the questions and, um, and, and scenarios that we received from our listeners and Facebook page viewers and followers and sort of address some of these for the purpose of giving you a better understanding of negligence. So we have talked about the example of the automobile accident, the rear end collision. We have, I think, done a good job of of kind of piecing together the puzzle and explaining how it works. Now let's talk about something different. Let's talk about professional negligence. Okay, the negligence of a doctor, an architect, a lawyer, But in this case, we're going to talk about the negligence of a real estate agent, okay? Now, we've talked in the past about consumer fraud violations and that sort of thing, so we're not going to get into that today. We're just going to talk about negligence and real estate agents. Okay, so let's say that you have a real estate agent who is selling a house and he meets with his client. And the client says to him, listen, I've got some water stains in the basement. I'm certain that it's a leak. I've seen water come in. I've had to pump it out. But, you know, it's not terrible. I'm afraid that if we disclose that information, nobody's going to buy the house because, you know, one of the the selling features of the house is this nice finished basement. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rip out the drywall. I'm going to put new drywall up. It'll take me a day or so. And uh, it's not supposed to rain, so when you show the house, nobody will notice that there was water damage or, or stains on the, you know, the existing drywall. And the real estate agent thinks to himself, well, I want to sell the house. That's how I, I make my money. I want to sell it. 
And, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that it's really actively leaking. You know, I think that this is okay. So I'm going to go along with this. I'm not going to disclose this information to the other broker. I'm not going to disclose it to the potential buyer. But we're going to give it a go. And, and, you know, as long as the guy fixes it, do drywall up, we're good. Okay? So now the purchaser comes in with their home inspector, love the house, right? They want to move forward with the purchase. And uh, home inspector looks around. There's no visible evidence of any water in the basement. And so he gives his seal of approval and ultimately leads to, um, you know, a, a finalized contract negotiation and a closing date. We're all set. So closing happens and the purchaser comes in and within the first month or two, there's, there's a massive torrential rainstorm. And while he's, uh, you know, sitting in his basement watching TV, water starts to drip in through the drywall on the floor, through the drywall, and, and he's, he's panicked. So he calls in a contractor to make repairs, and as the guy is ripping the drywall that's now wet, the new replaced drywall off the wall, he says, look at these white marks on the foundation. Right? This is indicative of a number of flooding incidents. This isn't a result of this torrential downpour that we just had. Look at the different levels, the different height of, of watermark mark, um, mark stains, right? So this is something that's been going on for a while. When you bought the house, did anyone tell you that there was a, an issue? And, you know, you say no. And as your contractor continues to inspect the situation, he says, ah, well, look at this. There's a crack in the foundation here. And this apparently is where the water is seeping in from. You've got a problem. This is going to cost you $30,000 to fix. All right? You go upstairs, you tell your wife, you're afraid that she's going to start yelling at you. You know, you've got your suitcase packed because you're afraid of what she's going to say. You know? Right? She's, oh, you, I relied on you. This was your home inspector. You told me this was a good house. Well, you go and you contact a lawyer, and the lawyer says you may have a negligence claim, a malpractice claim against your real estate agent. Let's look at how that would happen. Let's assume for a minute, purchaser files a lawsuit. He files the lawsuit against the prior homeowner, his real estate agent, the seller's real estate agent, and the home inspector. I want to talk about that negligence claim with respect to the brokers. Okay, now, we learn through discovery that the seller made repairs to the drywall and knew that there was a leak. We also learn that the agent was aware of it. Now, let's, let's put that together with the elements of negligence. Number one, does the real estate agent for the seller owe a duty of care to you, the purchaser? And the answer is yes. He is mandated through his license under statute, under the administrative code, to provide you with accurate information to do a certain level of due diligence with respect to the listing and sale of a house, And so it's clearly established that he owes you a duty of care. 
Now let's talk about the breach. Can you establish a breach of that duty of care? Well, we know that this broker, he didn't direct the seller to replace the drywall. He didn't direct the seller to hide the condition. He simply omitted the fact about the basement when he discussed the house with your real estate agent. So is he negligent? He didn't do it actively here. He didn't actively hide the condition. He didn't suggest to the seller, why don't you, you know, lie about it and put up the drywall? He simply knew about it and omitted it. Well, to breach a duty of care, it does not have to be an action. It can be inaction as well. So his omission, his knowing omission, he intentionally omitted the fact that there had been water damage in the basement when he discussed the sale of the house with your real estate agent. That is a breach of duty. How do we know? We're going to look at the reasonable person standard. Would a reasonable real estate agent under the same set of circumstances have done the same thing? And the answer to the question is no. A reasonable real estate agent, now this is interesting that I'm saying this, a reasonable real estate agent, why am I saying that? Because when you apply the reasonable person standard, you must do so based upon the person that you're trying to apply the standard to. So if you are a doctor, the reasonable person standard is, would a reasonable physician under the same circumstances act in a particular way? If you're an architect, would a reasonable architect? If you're a driver, would a reasonable motorist? If you are a store owner, would a reasonable business owner? So the reasonable person standard applies to you in the position and situation that you are in. So getting back to the example, your real estate or the seller's real estate agent, would a reasonable real estate agent have done the same thing? No. The reasonable real estate agent would have said, I'm not permitted to omit a material fact about a house that I'm aware of. I've got to disclose that. So in this scenario, it is quite clear that a breach of duty has occurred. Now, damages? Yeah, there's damages. You've got $30,000, $35,000 worth of repair work that needs to be done. And can you, can you show that the breach and the damages were proximately connected, proximately caused, right? And the answer is yes. Because but for the omission of the real estate agent, you might not have purchased the house. Since this is a multi-party litigation in this example, now we've got to look at the negligence of everyone else. So let's look at the negligence of the seller. Did he owe a duty of care? Yes. Did he breach the duty of care? Well, we know that he acknowledged he was aware of the water damage. He fixed it. He knowingly deceived, if you will, you as the buyer. Right? He concealed. This is like knowing concealment of a potential issue. There are rules, laws, administrative regulations that require a seller to disclose issues about the house. So he knowingly did it. 
So, yes, he owed a duty of care. Did he breach it? Yes. Would a reasonable seller have acted the same way under the circumstances? And no. A jury would decide that it is unreasonable for someone to hide a material fact which is important to the purchase and sale of a home. Are there damages? Yes. Is it proximately connected, causally connected? Yes. So now we've established in this multi-party litigation, negligence against the seller's broker, negligence against the seller. Now let's look at your broker. Does he have a duty of care? Yes, absolutely. He owes you a duty of care to advise you, to disclose information that he may be aware of, that he either is aware of or should have been aware of. Now let's move on to breach. Did he breach his duty of care? Well, he didn't identify to you that there was water damage in the basement. But did he know? No, he didn't know. He only relied upon the statements made by the seller's broker. You have to look further into the, the, the duties of a real estate broker to investigate. You know, and, and in general, a real estate agent does not have to uh, actively investigate. I mean, they're not home inspectors, right? He doesn't have to do destructive testing to determine whether or not there's ever been a water leak. He is able to look around, see what, what's there to be seen, and then rely upon the statements of the seller's broker. So did he breach his duty of care? Well, let's hold off on a sec for that for a second. We know he owes a duty of care. Are there damages? Yes, the same damages that you have with the other defendants. Are the damages proximately related to his breach? Well, we can't determine that until we establish whether or not he acted reasonably under the circumstances. So, he didn't know. He had no way of knowing. He wasn't obligated to do invasive testing, and he relayed the representation of the seller's agent to you. Is he negligent? Well, the answer is no. He did not act in an unreasonable manner. You know, apply the test. Would a reasonable real estate broker under the same circumstances have advised you that the house was okay? The answer is yes. That's reasonable to look around the basement, to not see any issues, to rely upon the statements of the seller and the seller's agent. So your real estate agent is not liable. There's no claim against him or her. Final person in this analysis, the home inspector. Okay, Home inspectors are held to a particular standard. Do they owe you a duty of care? Yes. Right? They're obligated because the law the administrative code, various regulations require them to act in a certain manner, to have certain training and experience, to be able to advise you on whether or not to buy a house. Right? Oftentimes, a home inspector is the last line of defense that a purchaser may have. They may love the house. It may look great. It may be the right price. But they're going to rely on the home inspector to say, Cosmetically looks good, but internally there's issues. So clearly, they owe you a duty of care. Do you have damages? Yes. Proximate cause? We're not sure yet. Now let's look at that second prong. Did your home inspector breach his duty of care? Well, we're going to look at what's reasonable for a home inspector under the same set of circumstances. 
and we're going to make that determination. So would a reasonable home inspector have reason to know that there was water damage in the basement? Well, we have to look at the actions of your home inspector. Did he inspect the basement? Yes. Did he look for water damage? Yes. Did he see any? No. Did he inquire? Did he say to the broker any water damage? No. Is it necessary that he does that? Probably not. He inspected. He looked for signs. He didn't see anything. There was no way for him to see it. Right? He, he's not going to tear down the walls to say, let me just check the foundation. I want to poke holes in all the basement walls. That, that's not reasonable. So failure to identify that there was water damage, is it unreasonable? No, absolutely not. He relied on statements. He relied on his own investigation. He conducted the investigation in a proper and reasonable manner, and he was unable to ascertain that there was prior water damage in the basement. Why? Because the home owner covered it up. So do you have a claim against your home inspector? No. So in that case, right, multi-party litigation, who survives in the lawsuit as defendants? The seller and the seller's real estate agent. And there's a whole scenario about apportionment of the damages, who pays, who's more responsible, but we don't need to get into that. This is a discussion on negligence and establishing negligence. All right, let's give you one more example. So you are a restaurant owner and you have a very small, let's say, Mexican restaurant in a strip mall, right? I only say that because I went to a Mexican restaurant the other night in a strip mall, which happened to be very good. And as, you know, uh, winter progresses, right, like the winters we've had this year, a lot of snow, a lot of ice, a lot of cold temperatures. So the restaurant owner will open up his restaurant when he can get to the restaurant right after a snowstorm. He will shovel. He'll put down salt. So five snowstorms into the winter, every snowstorm, the owner wakes up, waits till the snow stops, gets to the restaurant, shovels the walkway, puts down ice melt. Okay? Now, when you walk into the building, when you open up his front door, he has a terracotta or tile floor. Very Mexican themed, right? All the way through. Sombreros and tile on the floor, right? Just what you want to see when you go into a restaurant. However, he doesn't have a rug or a mat. But the outside's clear, okay? So, you go into that restaurant after a snowstorm. And you're wearing shoes, boots, sneakers, right? Appropriate footwear. It's not like you're wearing flip-flops. And... You, you notice how nice and clear the front walkway is. But because there's ice melt, right, the ice has melted. That's the purpose of ice melt. And, and the sidewalk is wet. There's melting snow. There's melting ice. Sidewalk's wet. So the bottom of your shoes, the soles of your shoes are slippery. You walk into the front door. You step on the tile floor. And your foot goes out from underneath you. You fall you smack your head on the pavement, 
right? Because like half your body's outside, half your body's inside, and you have a fractured skull. Well, let's let's run it through the negligence analysis. Does the owner of the restaurant owe you a duty of care? Yes, he does, right? Again, state law, statutes, administrative regulations say that an owner of a commercial property has a duty to maintain his restaurant in a safe condition. Now let's look at reasonableness, right? Let's look at the, the breach. Did he breach his duty of care? Well, he shoveled the outside, and that's what he's going to argue. You know, are you kidding me? I shovel, I, I smelt, I'm, I'm there all the time. It's so clear. Okay, but is it foreseeable that someone walking into a restaurant where there's snow, ice, and melting snow and ice on the ground, is it foreseeable that the bottoms of their shoes would be slippery? Yes. Is it foreseeable that a tile floor is slippery when wet? Yes. His failure to put the mat down on that tile, is that reasonable? All right, and here's where we're going to do the analysis. Would a reasonable business owner, under the same set of circumstances, have placed a rug on that tile? The answer is yes. It is reasonable and foreseeable to understand that wet shoes on a tile floor could be slippery, someone could fall. Therefore, he did breach his duty of care. Now you go through the rest of the analysis. Are there damages? Well, yes. She fractured her skull, or he fractured his skull. Damages. And is his breach, or are the damages proximately caused by his breach? Yes, because but for his failure to lay down a, a mat on the tile floor, this would not have occurred. Okay? So now we've seen this in auto cases, We've gone through the professional malpractice case, and we've gone through a premises liability case. Now, I just want to take the premises liability case, and I want to change one factor in an analysis to prove a point. Let's assume that everything is the same as we discussed. Sidewalk is shoveled, ice melt, melting snow. You're wearing sneakers. You're walking cautiously into the restaurant. You step on a tile floor, there's no mat, you slip, and you fall. Except this time, instead of fracturing your skull, nothing happens except your pants are wet and you are super embarrassed. Because it just so happens that three coworkers were there that night, and when they saw you go down, they whipped out their iPhones and they videotaped you flailing on the ground like a wet seal. Okay. Can you sue? Well, let's look at this. Was the owner video a duty of care? Yes. Did he breach the duty of care? Yes. Now let's look at the damages. Do you have actionable damages? You're going to say you were embarrassed and you have wet clothes. Is there a value to that? No. Okay, quite frankly, no. So, you don't have damages. But there's negligence. And this goes back to what I've been saying, not only today, but in prior broadcasts and on prior videos, prior discussions with people. 
a lawsuit must contain both liability and damages. So in this negligence analysis here, while you have liability because there's a breach of care, there's a duty owed, you don't have damages, so you can't complete that four-element analysis. And your case will fail because you don't have damages. Your embarrassment does not rise to a particular level. You can't recover for that. Okay? So that's what I need to get across with respect to negligence and any lawsuits. You must meet all four elements of negligence. In other cases, in other uh, causes of action, there might be two elements, there might be ten elements, there might be five. You have to tick off each one of those elements. And as you've seen through this negligence discussion, sometimes there are components of each element. So, for example, the is there a breach of duty element, the component of that is the reasonable person standard. So, I hope that that uh, sort of breaks down negligence and gives you a really good explanation of how negligence works. It's tied into some, some pretty good, I think, examples and it's, it's a, an across-the-board sampling of professional malpractice, automobile negligence, and uh, premises liability. Uh, I'd like to thank you today for joining me and for um, submitting all your questions and comments on Facebook and through our website. Um, for those of you who have contacted me directly, I, I appreciate it. And I really want to encourage you to uh, keep chatting with us and keep sending your questions and comments so that we can address them on the air. Um, we'll be back next week. We'll have uh, more legal and business news and information. Uh, if you have any legal questions or a particular issue that you want to address on the air, please give us a call. You can call the office directly at 973-949-3770, or you can email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at PeterLamontESQ.com. That email is on our website, understandingthelawradio.com. And I would like to, uh, again, encourage you to keep up the dialogue so that we know what sort of information uh, you're interested in, what sort of information you'd like to know, what areas of the law you'd like to discuss, and, uh, and what sort of topics you'd, you'd like to hear on the show. So I'd like to thank you for joining me, and I'd like to remind you that there is power in understanding the law. on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Candley Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off.